it's Kate's birthday this today, and uh, that has nothing to do with what I'm about to say, but I thought I'd remind you again. No, I, when I was growing up, every birthday I would have would be this wonderful day, this beautiful moment. You know, Aaron's turning whatever, one year older, and every year uh, there would always be this sour moment at dinner time where I think my mom just thought it was hilarious that she'd be like, well, you're a year older, you get more responsibility now. And then we would go through a long, uh, felt to me long, it probably was about 12 seconds, conversation about, okay, what should an eight-year-old be able to contribute to the house? You know, what should I be able to do now that I turned nine or 10 or whatever age? And it always was this moment of like, oh, the crushing weight of responsibility of being a contributor in the family. But as Christians, as you know, members of churches, we have quite the responsibility when we look to God's word. There's a lot of responsibility uh, that God has given to us, both in our individual walks and corporately as a church. Uh, these responsibilities, uh, I mean, many will find out tonight at the membership class, we outline in our church covenant. And this is really what we define and what we commit to in membership. We're saying, this is what the Bible says, and this is what we commit to do. But these are the responsibilities of being a Christian. Now, this is a, a, that's a big conversation. That's a lot to consider. But this morning, I want to consider Ephesians chapter 3, the first half of Ephesians 3. And we'll see a couple rich truths, uh, and each of them contributing in a different way to part of the responsibility that you and I have as Christians. In Ephesians chapter 3, we see the mystery of the gospel. All right, kids, I want you to focus as we read through Ephesians chapter 3, the first bit. I want you to count how many times we see the word mystery and come tell me after, okay? How many times we see mystery. But we see the mystery of the gospel, which Paul doesn't keep hidden for long. He tells us pretty blatantly and bluntly that the gospel is for everyone. That is the mystery. We also see a responsibility, the ministry of the gospel, that it's our job to do the work. And we also see a really profound verse in Ephesians chapter 3 about the manifold wisdom of God. That it is God's plan to display his wisdom even to the supernatural realm through the church. So you may be here this morning and that fires you right up. You may be here this morning and you hear a sentence like that and you scratch your head. Either way, I am glad you're here. And so let's dive in to God's word as we consider God's plan for the church. And that's our big idea. God has a big plan for the church. God has a big plan for the church. That's our big idea through Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Let's consider these truths. Starting in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. This whole section is sort of a diversion for Paul. He starts out saying, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then it's like he kind of gets sidetracked. He, he diverts. And then we'll see, the Lord willing, next week we'll jump back in at verse 14. And he starts the same way. For this reason, uh, I bow my knees. And so in this passage, uh, scholars, can, I, maybe you have this in your, in your life, in your conversations. You're talking about one thing and then you're in a, another kind of thing. Or in up, you know, the squirrel, you know, the dog, the dog gets kind of sidetracked. Now Paul's distractions or Paul's sidetracks are incredibly rich. This is far from just Paul's musings. Uh, this is incredible truths. And so the first truth I want to examine is the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. Again, kids, figure out how many times we see mystery in only 13 verses. The mystery of the gospel. Now we considered this mystery last week. We didn't talk about it as much being a mystery, but we considered this mystery. But Paul is explicit here in verse 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he says the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Well, the Gentiles are everybody that is not Jewish, everybody that is not a Jew. They share the privilege and the hope that comes with peace with God. Last week we considered peace with God and peace with one another. How on earth can we have peace with God and how can we therefore have peace with one another? This is what Paul is drawing out when he talks about the mystery of the gospel. Now when Paul gives, uh, when he talks about a mystery, he's not talking about something that is impossible to understand, something that is, uh, you know, well, not impossible. He's talking about something that is undiscovered. Right? So when Sherlock Holmes or whoever your favorite uh, detective is, is looking for you know, the solution to a mystery, they know there's a solution. It's just a mystery. It's just masked or it's, it's hidden. It is yet to be discovered. Now when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, this ushered in a new era. It was a revealing of something that was greatly anticipated. It's quite popular nowadays when you're having a baby to have a gender reveal party. Right? You pop the balloon. It's this big, exciting thing. Now that isn't the moment that something happens. It's just the moment that something is revealed. And so you reveal, are we having a boy or a girl? It's simply exposing a truth that up till that point was unknown. 
but it's still a truth that people are anticipating, they're waiting for. And so we can look all the way through the Old Testament and see this this line, this truth coming through. So even all the way back in Genesis 12, God's covenant with Abraham was that the nations would be blessed through him. Not just one nation, the nations would be blessed through him. And we see this line goes all the way through the Old Testament. If you had to kind of summarize the Old Testament, you could say promises made. And when we get to the New Testament, we see promises kept. And so this is the direction that things were going. God would make a way for all people, regardless of race, to know him, to have peace with him, and to know this salvation. And so this is the new covenant. This is what was ushered in by Jesus. That God knew humanity was broken. We have sinned. We have turned away from him. We have made ourselves kings and queens of our own lives. And we've broken that fellowship. We've broken that relationship. Right? We've built it. We've put a chasm between us, sinful people, and God, a holy, perfect, and just God. And throughout the Old Testament, as they awaited uh, these, this promise to be kept, they had to have mediators, priests. They had to have sacrifices. Uh, animals would have to die for the sins of people. But God had made these promises that one day all people would be able to know him and be at peace with him. And that was through the ultimate mediator, his own son, Jesus, who he sent into the world to live a perfect, sinless life, yet die the death that you and I deserve for our sin. So he was the perfect, spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice for you and I, that in his death, and then in his resurrection, God's wrath against sin was satisfied. That is the good news. This was the inauguration of the new covenant. And so this was like this global mystery revealing party. That when Christ died and when Christ rose, this mystery was revealed. What could only be imagined before was exposed. And that by trusting in Jesus for salvation, we could know this peace. We could know salvation. This is the good news. That no matter where you come from, no matter how successful you are, we could come to God and be made right with him. Not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. Rather than God seeing us, he sees Christ. Because Christ took our sin. This is the good news of the gospel. That's literally what gospel means. Good news. And this is what was ushered in in this time. Now, if you do not know this hope and you are here this morning, if you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, we would love to talk to you more about what that means this morning. Come and track down the person that invited you here. Uh, come talk to me. Just honestly turn to anyone beside you and ask them about the hope they have in Christ. It is good news. Promises made and promises kept. And then Paul goes on to actually highlight what happens to someone when they become a Christian, when they know this peace. And he's specifically talking about the Gentiles. Again, Jew and Gentile, radical divide. Right? Centuries of hatred and division. Look at how Paul describes them. He says, the, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So first, they are fellow heirs. You are adopted into God's family. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are a child of the King. We've seen this through chapters 1, 2, and now 3 of Ephesians. This radical shift happens. The hatred between Jew and Gentile is broken because they are now fellow heirs. There are not multiple tiers of Christians. There's not multiple classes. They are equal heirs. They have equal status before God. So we see fellow heirs, but even more than that, they are members of the same body. They're not only siblings, they are one. Paul illustrates this in chapter 2. He says there's one new man instead of the two. This is crazy. This is crazy. They are united by the gospel. There are many worldly divisions that are in place between them, but they are now united because of the gospel. That supersedes any other differences. And this happened in a definitive moment, right? This global mystery-revealing party when Christ died and rose, there was a way for all of us to be made right with God. Yet for some reason, we are still in the habit today of drawing lines where we have no business drawing them. We create division where there should be no division. And this is something we need to be ready and willing to confess. We considered this deeply last week. We can know peace with God. We have been reconciled with God. That is an impossibility, but a beautiful impossibility. And when Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about because of that reconciliation, we can have reconciliation with one another. Yet we harbor resentment. We hate one another. We create walls where there's no business being a wall. And so if you're here this morning and you need to make reconciliation with someone, do it. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. And because we have been reconciled, we can seek reconciliation. And so fellow heirs, members of the same body, and also partakers in the same promise. This is what we considered. The new covenant brings in these covenant promises to Gentiles. Gentiles who never could have known it before, never could have imagined it. We saw this in chapter 2. Paul talks about the hopelessness, the separation, but gone. And so when someone becomes a Christian, they become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise. They had no hope without God in the world. But then we see in our passage today, verse 12, Ephesians 3, 12, says, in whom, Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We no longer need this human mediator because Christ is our mediator. We no longer need to have this animal sacrifice because Christ is our sacrifice. This is good news for us today. This is peace with God. But if we understand this peace with God correctly, it demands peace with one another. Paul understands this. He, he says in Ephesians 3 that God revealed it to him. 
But he also understands this because he knows this separation from God. You know, he had the royal flush of, you know, his upbringing. He was a Jew. He had a Roman citizenship. He, he had everything. But he knew he was hopeless apart from Christ. I wonder how true that is for us today. We're seeking whatever we're seeking. You know, comfort, status, security. And that is just always on the horizon, something that we're always after. But do we know and understand the depravity that we're in apart from Christ? Paul was a radical persecutor of Christians. Right? If you know the story, he was Saul is what he went by, and he was after Christians. He was literally on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians when he was in turn arrested by Christ. Jesus appeared to him in a light brighter than the sun, brought him to his knees, humbled him. He had to be led into the city by the hand because he was blinded by the light. And his heart was changed. He realized that it didn't matter what he had if he didn't have Christ. And so he understands this impossibility and this inclusion that could happen. That as we looked at again in chapter 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but because of Christ, we can be made alive. And so he grasped the goodness of this mystery. And because he understood this mystery, the mystery of the gospel, it turned into a lifetime of ministry for the gospel. And so that's our second point this morning, the ministry of the gospel. As we went through the book of Acts over our first year or so as a church, we saw this time and time again. The ministry of the gospel is a gift of God's grace. It requires suffering and it is motivated by love. Let's look at each of those. First, the ministry of the gospel is a gift of God's grace. Verse 2, Paul writes, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. This is a gift and a responsibility that Paul must steward to take the gospel to the Gentiles. God gave Paul, after his uh, Damascus Road experience, quite the commissioning. He said, you will go and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles before kings and governors. And so Paul knows that this is his responsibility, but he describes it as a gift. Again, in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And so this is a gift of God's grace. It is a message of hope and a mandate to minister it. And when we see that word minister, we can scratch our heads a little bit and say, well, that's, that's not me. I'm not a minister. Well, the word here is not pastor or elder. The, the word here that's translated to minister is diakonos, which is how we get the word deacon. It means servant. And so Paul is, this isn't necessarily, uh, now his ministry in a lot of ways was preaching, church planting. But to be a minister here is to be a servant. Paul is a servant of Christ and his message. I love when Paul describes his uh, prison sentence. In verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Not a prisoner of Rome, not a prisoner of Nero. He's a prisoner for Christ. 
And so Paul is a servant to Christ in his message. And if you are a Christian, this is your mandate too. Your conversion might look a little different than Paul's. You might not have had a Damascus Road experience in the exact same way as him. You may not have received the verbal uh, commissioning that Paul received to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But our ministry of the gospel is to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel. Jesus' words to his followers and to us when he ascended into heaven was, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And he promised that he would be with us always to the end of the age. That's our commissioning. This is our mandate. And so we need to grasp the mystery of the gospel. And we need to live out this ministry of the gospel. Now are you struck or even doubtful that God would use someone like you? Why would God use little old me? Well, he used Paul. Now, Paul was a pretty special guy, but not apart from God's grace. If I were picking teams for my ministry, you know, cohort, and I was looking at you or Paul, the terrorist who wanted to arrest and kill Christians, I would pick you. And I don't think that's a crazy pick. But amazingly, what God does is he worked in Paul's heart, and he gifted Paul this gift of God's grace, this ministry that could only come from above to accomplish amazing things, not because of who Paul was, but because of how good God is. And so if you feel inadequate, know that this is just the way God works. If you are a weak vessel, welcome. You are among friends. Of when Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If you feel unqualified, that is the best place to be, because God uses those who would otherwise be unqualified. It's a gift of grace that we can minister to the world, that we can be a servant of Christ. This isn't false humility, even though it's, it's easy for us to kind of be cynical and perk our ears up to this. When Paul says, to me, though, I am the very least of the saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I am the very least. He says elsewhere, he's the least among the apostles because of his history, because he had persecuted the church, because he had persecuted Christians. But the good news is God works. If you feel inadequate, God gives grace to fulfill our mandate, to be with us always, and to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. I love the way that Paul describes his mandate to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Think of that. The riches that we proclaim are unsearchable. They are unplumbable depths. 
of grace and peace. And yet, you, if you are anything like me, we keep our mouths shut far too often. We fear what may come of faithful proclamation. We think we may be ridiculed or shamed or mocked or ostracized. But the picture we see in God's word is that there is a cost to following Christ. And one of those costs of following Christ is suffering. And so the ministry of the gospel is a gift of God's grace, but the ministry of the gospel also requires suffering. We see that Paul's conversion changed his life radically. He devoted his entire life now to this ministry of proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. We see that Paul's heart was captured by Christ. And so his suffering couldn't even compare to the riches that he knew, to the hope that he had. So I love passages like this. I love anything Paul writes because you just see that seeping out of him. He's counted the cost. He's following Christ. I love biographies. They're such a great source for exactly this, this encouragement we need when we're facing suffering or the prospect of suffering. Think of people like John Payton, who I've I've talked about before, a missionary to the New Hebrides, and he faced significant suffering in his life. If you put his life on a little brochure and handed it out, I don't think many people would call you back and want to sign up for what he went through in his life. But he wrote this near the very end of his life. He said, let me record my immovable conviction that this is the noblest service in which any human being can be spent or spend. And that if God gave me back my life to be lived over again, I would without one quiver of hesitation lay it on the altar of Christ that he might use it as before in similar ministries of love, especially amongst those who have never yet heard the name of Jesus. That's a man who has counted the cost, suffered greatly, but knew it was worth it. Charles Simeon, Another man who suffered so much pushback and personal attack in his life, he devoted his entire life to preaching the gospel with a lot of flack. And he said this, We must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice that our holy head, Christ, has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently and we shall soon be partakers in his victory. This is the hope that we can have. Paul wrote to his apprentice and friend Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so suffering is inevitable, but we can rest in the promises that God knows what's best for us. Philippians 3, 7 through 12 says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has made you his own. This is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And we can boast in our weakness. We can boast in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the opposite of the message that we're sold from the world. If the goal in our life is to live a safe, secure, cushy life, we have set the bar far too low. And so the ministry of the gospel is a gift of God's grace. The ministry of the gospel requires suffering, and the ministry of the gospel is motivated by love. If we look at Paul or John Payton or Charles Simeon, we see that they are motivated by their love for God, their service to their king. As their zeal for their king grows, so does their zeal for the king's mission. We also see that this is motivated by a love for the lost. They care deeply about the people of the world who need to hear the gospel. Imagine you had just the perfect food source, and it was like, Amazingly delicious, incredibly cheap to make, incredibly uh, easy to store. It never expired. And you knew that there are tens of thousands of people every day who die because of hunger. And if you knew that it was going to cost you everything, that the, the selling point of this, hey, if you want to be a distributor of this impossible food product, it was going to cost you everything. Would you do it? This is the picture that we see painted of this good news, this message of hope that is far better than this miracle food source. It is to know peace with God. And so our love for the lost should motivate us to proclaim the gospel in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and to the ends of the earth. And we also see that this ministry of the gospel is motivated by love for one another. We see in the last verse, Paul says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul was willing to suffer on behalf of the church in Ephesus, now on behalf of all the churches that he would go to plant and proclaim the gospel to, so that they would know these unsearchable riches more and more. I doubt if I ever go to prison for my faith that my message to you will be so noble. I'm sure I would be saying, you know, I'm scared. The food is terrible. Get me out of here. There's a lot of things I would say before encouraging you. Don't lose heart. I'm suffering here so that you can know these unsearchable riches more and more. 
And so the ministry of the gospel must be selfless. I love when Paul, uh, in the same prison stay, when he writes to the Philippians, he talks about, uh, again, not like, hey, get that petition going so I can get out of here. He's saying, you know what's good? This is actually good I'm in prison. All the guards have heard the gospel, and the other Christians are now more bold because I'm in the prison. That's resolve. That is selfless love. Love for God, love for the lost, and love for one another. Let's be selfless ministers, selfless servants of the gospel. And so what's the payoff in all of this? The mystery of the gospel and this ministry of the gospel. Well, if we grasp this mystery, and if we commit our lives to be servants of the gospel, if we live out this ministry of the gospel, what is the purpose? What is the result? Well, Paul says, it's that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. So that's our third point this morning, the manifold wisdom of God. We talked about this before already in Ephesians. We get to verse 10 and we get a big so that. Remember, anytime you see a therefore or a so that, pay attention and buckle up. Something big's coming. So we get this so that. But for a little bit of context, I'm going to start in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. God has big plans for the church. God has big plans for the church. And so I fear that it's so easy for us to slip into having such a small view of the church is what we are doing, period, and even what we're doing this morning, inconsequential. Not according to scripture. The Greek word, uh, for church, and the word that we see here in verse 10, literally means assembly. An assembly, a gathering. It wasn't a word that only means church. It's a word that was used for any kind of assembly or gathering. And so there's other times, even in the Bible, we see the word used where it's not talking about a church. It's just talking about people gathering together. And it came to become synonymous with the church. But we are an assembly. We are a gathering. And what do we do? Well, we assemble, we gather to read the Bible, to preach the Bible, to pray the Bible, to sing the Bible, to see the Bible in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We assemble and we gather to glorify God, to edify one another, and to proclaim the gospel for all to hear. These things are true, and they are often neglected. But what else is going on here? What Paul talks about is a cosmic reality to what we are doing even this morning, a cosmic reality to God's assembled people. This mystery has been revealed, and it says, according to God's eternal purposes, the church, his gathered and assembled people, display his wisdom even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this is a bit of a mystery. What are we talking about with these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? 
We have to remain with a little bit of mystery with it all. But we see that God's glorious wisdom is displayed even to angelic beings who look onward and to hostile forces who look in fear. Why God would display his manifold or multifaceted wisdom even to the heavenly realms through the church, it escapes me. But maybe it's because it's so counter to our natural or human way of doing things. It is truly supernatural. A much more natural thing that we do is we hate each other. We exclude each other. We harbor resentment with each other. We build walls. But the mystery of the gospel is that there are no walls. Through the cross, Jesus created something otherwise impossible. And this is visible even to the heavenly places, but also here on earth. A former Harvard professor of psychology, we call him Bill, because that's his name. Uh, he was not a Christian, and he was looking at the church, and he was confused. He said, this doesn't make sense. And so he started attending the church because he just didn't get it. Now he didn't understand the truths of the gospel. He didn't know how to apply that to his life. But what he didn't understand was just this group of people. He couldn't put the pieces together. Every rule that he had devoted his life to studying in psychology was being broken. In his American context, there was Democrats and Republicans, white-collar, blue-collar, this was a multi-racial, multi-generational church that should have nothing in common. And he came week in and week out, and he saw that they weren't even just tolerating each other. They were sacrificially loving each other. He eventually became a Christian. He stuck around long enough to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. But to him, a very smart man, he just didn't have a category for what this church was doing as they were living this out. It is visible to the heavenly places, that's true. But it's also visible to the world. Jesus said that the world will know that we are his followers by our love for one another. And this is the privilege that we have and what God in his providence decided that he was going to display his wisdom in and through. And we get to be a part of it, church. We could exist as individual Christians, but why would we want to when we see these kinds of truths? When God's people come together to form visible and local assemblies, God's wisdom is on display. This reveals the mystery of the gospel. It is the ministry of the gospel. It's like if you were camping and you had a big bundle of sticks you wouldn't say, I mean, it's freezing. If you were camping in the fall, it would be a cold night. You wouldn't just light every stick and spread them around the whole campsite to keep you warm. You would bundle them all together. Because as they're closer together, they will burn brighter. They will burn hotter, and they'll burn longer. Similarly, if you were stuck on an island and you had all these sticks and you needed to be rescued, you would gather everything and you'd build the biggest fire because it would be then visible to the world not a couple smoldering sticks everywhere. And so we must commit to an identifiable group of Christians in a local church, and we must not neglect to meet together. As the author of Hebrews says, 
We gather to encourage, to spur on, to stir up. We gather to burn brighter, hotter, and for longer. We gather to be this visible, supernatural witness to the world. And so God has a big plan for the church, and God has a big responsibility for you, Christian. He's promised to give us his spirit, promised to be with us always. That's a lot of power. But as good old Uncle Ben told Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. And so we got to consider the responsibility that we have as Christians, as followers of him. But the good news is that we can proclaim this mystery. God in his mercy made a way for us to be made right with him, to be reconciled to him and to one another. And so our calling then is to be his people and to live out this ministry of the gospel. This ministry is to take up our cross. It's a call to suffer. But it's a gift of God's grace. And it's a gift, a service, a ministry that must be motivated by love for God, love for one another, and love for the lost. But we see through this that an imperfect group of ordinary Christians gathering in imperfect and ordinary churches God intends to display his manifold wisdom even to the heavenly places. How crazy is this? And this is the privilege that we get to know. This is our privilege and our call. This is a glorious mystery and our missional mandate. The church is a gift of God's grace to you, to me, and to a watching world who desperately needs to know the peace that we can have with God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you that the good news that we get to proclaim is still a mystery to our three-pound brains. God, we thank you that the riches of Christ are truly unsearchable. But God, we thank you that because of your grace, these riches are not unknowable. You have saved us by grace alone, and we praise you and thank you for your mercy. Lord, we pray that as we come to the table to share in the Lord's Supper, that we would be reminded of the weight of our sin, but also the weight of Christ's glorious sacrifice. God, would we never get tired of hearing the gospel? Would we dedicate our lives to knowing and understanding the mysteries? Would we dedicate our lives to the ministry? And God, through us and through your power, would you display your manifold wisdom here on earth and even to the heavenly places? We thank you that you can do what we cannot do. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.